Well, as we unpack this wonderful passage of Scripture today, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 23, I, I'm reminded of a book entitled, The Good Old Days, They Were Terrible. <laughs> you know, in terms of hard times, that's what this book is about, the, the poverty, the sickness, the long work hours, the, uh, the time spent, the effort made just to survive, uh, that book is absolutely correct. Uh, our lives are far easier today than any other time in history. Most of us possess things that only the, the super rich in the past could imagine even having. Our lives are more, have more potential, more opportunity than at any, any other time in history. All of our needs are met for the most part and most of our wants, and we do, really don't want or need anybody else to help us. Well, that comes with uh, some residue, however, that comes with the price, and that is the price of isolation and loneliness uh, more and more as we face a world that doesn't need one another and a Christian community that thinks it can, it can be isolated and independent. As we uh, face that more and more, we realize that, that, uh, that there's something missing. Nowhere in Scripture, you can't, can, cannot find anywhere in Scripture where you find an independent Christian, where you find a, a believer who thinks they can go it alone that they can live without ministering to others and be administered to by others that are, not, that are not part of a body of Christ. That simply does not exist in the New Testament. We have Christians who didn't do so well. We had some that needed to be corrected, but you never find any that, that thought they could go without the body of Christ, didn't need the body of Christ, and, could, and didn't minister to the body of Christ. That's a purely modern phenomenon. And so as we think about that today, as we look at this passage of Scripture uh, before us, uh, we're looking at uh, this mentality of this church at Corinth that was uh, not so much independent as it's simply selfish. They were a self-centered group of people, and they uh, didn't care much about uh, well, who they offended and how they hurt different ones. And so Paul is talking to them as he, as he ends this section that started in chapter 8 and goes to the end of chapter 10, actually goes into chapter 11. And he's motivating these people, and he's motivating us as well, uh, to uh, turn from a self-focused life in, where we're, in which we're looking at ourselves and what's, what we're all about, and to turn towards living for, the, for God's people and for others and serving in that capacity. So he wants to look at that. He wants to turn our eyes from ourselves and on to others instead of being self-reliant. He uses four approaches to do that. First of all, he gives us some timeless principles. And so we find in verses 23 and 24, three timeless principles. Uh, these will be true until the Lord returns and, and beyond, perhaps. But first of all, uh, we are to seek the benefit of others. Look at verse 23 with me. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. We're to seek the benefit of others. Paul's been telling his readers that go into the temple. Remember the context. They were going into the temple... And they were eating these, this meat sacrificed to the idols. Remember that? And then he told them in our passage last time, you cannot do that. You must not do that. And the reason why is when you go into those temples, the, the, the demons are behind those idols. And therefore you are worshiping and fellowshipping with demons. And the Christian who is, who is connected with Jesus Christ cannot, must not, be in fellowship and communion with demons. And so he absolutely forbids them to do any such things. But now he's moving on to another subject. He's moving on to private meals. Uh, he's moving on to people who eat outside of uh, the temples. They're not going into the temples. They're eating in homes. 
and, and buying meat in the marketplace. So he's looking at a different context here as he moves on. And he tells us in this verse, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Now, you might recall back in chapter 6, if you want to go back there for just a moment, chapter 6, verse 12, he used that, that exact same line. He said, all things are lawful, 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be, but, I'm sorry, but all things are not profitable, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so he's repeating that same phrase, but if you look at chapter 6, verse 12, he's focusing there on the individual. And he's talking about our lives. And he's saying that concerning our lives, all things are perhaps lawful. Now he's talking about things that are not forbidden by God. But those things might be lawful for us, but not all things are profitable. All things that are lawful, but will not be under the mastery or controlled by any of these things. And there he's talking about the individual. So going back to chapter 10, now he's talking not about the individual, uh, perhaps, but about our outreach to others, our relationship to others. And so as he talks about that here, uh, we, we give you kind of a crude example. There's no law that I know of against going down to a pig pen and wallowing in the mud with the pigs. Uh, I don't think there's any law against that. You can do it all day long if you want to, but it's probably not profitable, right? It's probably not something uh, most of you would want to do. And so you're allowed to, but you wouldn't want to do that because it's not va of value. It's not profitable. So he's saying in chapter 12, 6, especially in the area of morals, he's saying there's all sorts of things here, but be very, very careful because many things will lead you into sinful things, and many things that you're, you're involved with are not profitable. They're not helpful to you personally. Now he comes back, we're in chapter 10 again, as he does that this time, he is saying, look, there's lots of things that are lawful that you can do. There's lots of things as a Christian you can partake in. But be very careful, it is not always profitable for others. And though it might be okay for you per se, it is not necessarily okay for others, and you, and you are taking the chance on harming others if you're not very, very careful with that. So his question then in verse 23 if we turn that around, is what we're doing profitable for other people? Are we benefiting other believers? Are we benefiting the church of Christ? Are we being of, of benefit even to the unbeliever? And so he turns all that around. How much will it enrich them? Then he, then he moves on to a second timeless principle at the end of verse 23, and he says, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. So once again, there's all these things that you could do, but not everything edifies. The word edification is translated in the New International as constructive. It means to build up. If you're going to build a great building, you don't just go out and get a hammer and a, and a bucket of cement and go out and build the building. You have, you have blueprints. You, you have these plans. And you study those plans so you know how to build the building uh, properly. And so he's talking here about that very thing. How are you going to build up others? All these things, you might be allowed to do some of these things, but are they edifying, are they building up other people in the church and in our community as well? So as he talks about that, his question is, when you do things, who are you helping? When you're doing things, who are you strengthening? When you do things, who are you edifying or building up in the name of Christ? And in their faith. 
Now, not, this is, if we put these two passages together, we have a very helpful section here. In chapter 6, he's talking about what's profitable for us. And so we do things that are profitable for us, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. So when I, when I read the Bible and you read the Bible and study the Bible and come to church and various things like that, these are things that build us up. And I hope and pray that when you come on a Sunday like this and you hear the singing and you participate in that and the reading of scriptures and the prayers and the instruction from scripture, that you go away edified, built up, constructed personally. Uh, you can do things in a more practical basis as well. You, you might exercise so that your body is healthy. You might eat right so for the same reason. You might uh, enjoy fun uh, as well as work because those are part of life, and those are things for you. But now we put that together with, uh, with the body of Christ, and, and we are now not only looking at ourselves, but others as well. So we, so we think, here are things I do for me, but then on the other hand, what am I doing for others? And he's taking their focus off of themselves here and on to others. And quite frankly, folks, you cannot really uh, disconnect doing that which is profitable for ourselves from that which is profitable for others if you're a Christian. Because that what you do for yourself as you are building yourself up in turns helps you to build up others. There's not a clear disconnect by any means. So as I'm reading the Bible and stuff, I'm growing in my own edification and growth, but I'm also having the opportunity to share that with others. As I take care of my health, I, I can do that so I can, I can reach out longer and better for other people. So everything we're doing personally is also can be translated over to what we do for others. There's not a disconnect. Here's a third timeless principle, verse 24. Seek the good of others. He says here, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Now some people would probably like the King James version of this trans, uh, that is translated here. It says, uh, let, no, let others seek the wealth of others. That may you seek the wealth of others. Okay, some of you might like that. And, and I imagine some people have misused that passage on purpose uh, to seek other people's wealth. I, I don't know anybody personally, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised somewhere somebody's doing exactly that. But if you look at the verse of Scripture here, verse 24, it says, let no one seek his own good. And those of you that uh, are, have been around a while know that when a word is italicized, like this one, good, it's not in the Greek text. So in reality, there is no word there. And the translators have supplied various words uh, to help us understand the context. And, and they're exactly on the money here. When it says here, let no one seek his own good or his own welfare, uh, he, that's exactly what Paul means, but the word itself is not in the Greek text. But then he goes on to say, but that of his neighbor. So he's saying here, look, we have, in, in this whole context, going back to chapter 8, is that we have certain freedoms in Christ. There are certain things that we are allowed to, to do and that God allows us to do. Uh, but the bottom line for what we do with our lives and how we live our lives should not be how much fun can we have, how much stuff can we amass, uh, how many things can I do for me, the bottom line should not be that for the believer. The bottom line should be, what can I do 
with the life that God has given me and the resources that are mine, what can I do with those things to reach out and minister to others? That's exactly what he's saying here. And so when he says in verse 24 that no one seek his own, but, the, but that of his neighbor, he's speaking here, don't, don't get self-focused. Don't get so wrapped up in, in your resources and your money and your plans and your vacation and your fun and your recreation and your life and your building up of yourself spiritually. Don't get so wrapped up in that that you forget about those around you. Because the Lord has not given you anything that he didn't mean for you to share with either believers or unbelievers. That is the connection that we have in the body of Christ and the connection we have with this world. So it may be lawful, as he says, it may be lawful, but the question we should be asking is, does it benefit anyone else? Or is this thing that I'm going to do is, is going to be harmful? Will it hurt other people as well? So our first concern is unselfish Christians should be the well, spiritual well-being of others. And that is countercultural, and that is not natural to any of our natures by birth. Warren Wiersbe, most of you know Wiersbe, he has this B series of commentaries, going through all the New Testament, I think some of the old. His very first one was on Philippians. And I, Marcia and I had the privilege, back in our days at Moody, to hear him preach that, that actual series on Philippians before he ever wrote a commentary. And so we got to hear that series. It was wonderful, and I was so glad when he put it in print, and it put up so many more. But he had an illustration that he used that I've never forgotten. And I find it very humorous, and I find it very true. It's, it's a little story of a, of a mother and their little, her little son that got into an elevator. And as uh, the elevator began to fill up with other people, and a very plump lady got on the elevator right in front of the son. And as the door shut, she was crammed right up against him. About a second or two later, there was a squeal by the woman who turned around and said, your son just bit me. <laughs> and the little boy had a, had a retort. He said, she sat it on my face and I bited her. Right? <laughs> I don't know what the mother did with that, but uh, that was a very interesting illustration. I, I fear, though, that that is the world. Pe people are... are coming into our space, they're pushing against us, they're not, they're not letting us do what we want to do, and we're lashing back. That's natural. That's what everybody does. That's why scriptures are replete with talking about, do not take your own revenge, beloved, but leave it to the Lord. That's why scripture is constantly calling us to love, uh, and not self-centeredness, because our natural bent is just the opposite. Our natural bent is to bite back. And so he tells us here, do not seek your own good, but seek that of others. Some authors said it this way, if you want your own way, God will let you have it. Hell is the enjoyment of one's own way forever. Well, you might consider that, think about that. So there's the principles. Timeless principles, just as true in the first century as they are today. And then Paul moves on to a second approach, and he, he now gives us some specific applications. This is very specific to the issue at hand there in verses 25 through 29. And let me say this before we jump in here. The Bible is meant to be applied. 
studying the Bible, reading the Bible, getting information about the Bible and scripture and so forth that is not applied is deadly. It is deadly. When I was going to Moody years ago, we, one of the assignments I had was to go to a mission in Chicago. Uh, the missions in Chicago are not like the missions here or in most places. They, they were very, many of you know Pacific Garden Mission, I was at another one. But these, these missions were located in the, the worst parts of, of Chicago and mainly ministering to uh, alcoholics, drunks, down and outers, street people, homeless people who had no place to go. And they're populated all over Chicago, or at least they used to be. And they're, they're ministering to these people. And one of the rules there was that uh, you could have a free meal every night. Sometimes they housed them, depending on the group. But you could have a free meal every night, a good meal, but before you got the food, you had to set through a sermon. Okay, and I, that's what I, my, what I was doing, part of the, what we're doing at Moody, is I was part of a group that went down to have services one night a week, and, and they had them every night of the week, seven nights a week. They had these things, but they had to eat. Before they could eat, they had to listen to a sermon. And they made them stay awake. They'd come around and poke at them. Uh, we've got a ministry, a new ministry here. Uh, some of you might be interested in that. Wouldn't that be a great? You know, the Puritans actually did that. The Puritans had people walking up and down and hitting people with sticks to wake them up. But then again, the Puritans preached for two hours. So, you know, maybe a little, I, we don't have that ministry yet. But, uh, but they did do that. I remember that in Chicago. And I do remember this, uh, the, the leader of the mission that I was at said to me one day, and I don't know why he said this, maybe because I was talking too much. But he said, you know, these men know more about the Bible than you and I do. They have heard thousands and thousands of sermons, night after night after night, but they've never applied the truth to their lives. And so you can hear all the sermons you want, read the Bible all you want, get all that information amassed, but if you don't apply it to your life through the power of the Spirit, then you are going nowhere. And that's where Paul is taking these people now. He's given the principles, now he's going to make direct application to their lives, and that's why you and I need to be doing as well. There's a danger of understanding the scriptures and not applying it. There's a real danger of men going into the ministry who go off to Bible colleges and seminaries who study the Bible for academic grades, studying the Bible academically without application. That's deadly. It's not the best approach. Everybody who's doing that needs to be involved in a local church to apply that in their life and in their church environment. And let me say this for you just as application for each of us. If you're saying, well, how do I apply the Bible? Let me just give you one very, very simple method. After you've read whatever you're going to read that morning or that afternoon in the scriptures, whether it's one verse or several chapters, take a few more minutes, turn to the Lord in prayer, and talk to him about what you read. Go to him and pray over what you just read just for a few moments. That's simple. Many other approaches you could take, but that's a simple methodology of application. You must apply the word to your life. Well, let's press on here. Let's see what he has to say concerning the issue there. In verse 25 and 26, he gets very specific with their situation. He says, verse 25, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord and all it contains. 
Now, all the way back to chapter 8, he's been talking about this meat in, the, in sacrificed idols. And, and you don't have that problem, do you? So we'll get to that in a moment. That they did. And back, in, back in chapter 8, or chapter uh, 8, I mean, yeah, he, he said it's all right to, to eat this meat as long as it doesn't harm others. In chap, earlier in chapter 10, he says you can eat the meat, but you cannot go to the temples of these idols, these demonic creatures, and eat that meat. That's wrong. And now he comes to a whole different context, and he's saying, what about meat sold in the marketplace and meat that is being eaten at somebody's home? And so he says here, as he moves into that, he says in verses 25 and, and 26, eat anything you buy at the marketplace. If it's taken out of, the, out of the temple, taken to the open market, you're free to buy it. After all, everything the Lord has made is, is good. But then verses 27 and 28, he goes on. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for, uh, for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. So now he's getting down to the issue. He says you're at some unbeliever's home, and they're serving you a steak dinner. Eat it. Don't ask any questions. But if somebody there, maybe the owner of the house, the people that invited you, or maybe someone else, maybe a Christian, and they say, did you know that meat was sacrificed to idols? And if they tell you that, they inform you of that, don't eat it. He said, for the conscience sake of the others, person. And so what he's saying here then is we're not concerned about ourselves, we're concerned about the other person and looking at them. Now, I said for a moment ago, none of you have ever been in that situation, have you? Have any of you eaten meat sacrificed to idols? No. So this really has no direct application to you, does it? At least you don't think so. But then we bring it back to ourselves today. Do we have situations in our world, our culture, right now, in which these principles must be applied? Is it, is it possible that, that the, the, the amusements that we partake in, the places that we go, how we spend our, our lives, decisions that we make, the consumption thereof of alcohol or not, uh, even the way we drive our vehicles, and now, more recently, all the questions that have floated around about the COVID virus and all those things. Do those have any relationship to you and other people? The decisions that you make, Paul is saying, are not your own. They're not just about you. They also affect other people. They affect Christians. They affect unbelievers. And he wants us to be aware of that. Then he moves on to a third approach. So if you're scratching your head on what I just said, so were the Corinthians. We're moved to a third approach. Paul now anticipates objections. He expects that they will push back. He expects they do not like what he just said. And he offers two objections that he expects them to say. He's going to beat them to the punch. Before they ever say it, he is going to anticipate what they're going to say and answer those questions. 
there's good, there's good in that. Here at the church, when we do premarital counseling, we take a couple and we uh, help anticipate the future problems they might face. And so we lay those out and we offer biblical answers and approaches and we say, here are problems that you're going to probably face in the future. You don't think you've faced them now, but believe me, you will. And usually as I go through these different things with them, and I've done a couple of hundred of these now, and uh, as you go through these things with people, you, you, uh, they, they just kind of look at you with big cow eyes and say, we'll never have that kind of problem. We'll never have that. I mean, we couldn't possibly have that. And, uh, and usually one of the, my favorites is communication. I say, well, how well do you guys communicate? About 999 out of 1,000 have said, uh, we talk about everything. We can communicate about anything, no problem whatsoever. And I look at them with big cow eyes and say, well, you will. You know? And here are some of the stumbling blocks that are, are going to be in your way. Here are some of the things that are going to come along, I'm going to anticipate for you, that are going to cause you to have problems in communication, and you need to know they're coming, and you need to know how to deal with them. Now, they don't believe me, but they will. They will, they will see these later. Now, now, I haven't solved a problem for them yet, because they don't have a problem yet, but I've anticipated a problem for them. And by the way, if you'd like for me to anticipate some problems for your marriage, come and see me after church. I've, I've got a list that I could probably unload on you. Anticipating what's going to happen is very helpful. And so Paul anticipates two objections. The same two objections you have when it comes to this kind of issue. Number one, why should I limit my freedom for somebody else? Look at verse 29, the end. He says this, but... Uh, let me read the whole verse. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other man's. Now here's the objection. So for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Now let me say this before I press on. This verse and the next are very difficult to interpret. It's very hard to understand what Paul is saying. And so after much, much study and reading many, many approaches to this and, under, and commentaries on this, I believe the best understanding is what I've just said. Paul is not saying this is what should happen. He's saying here's what is happening. Here's, here's the problems I'm anticipating. Here's what you're going to say in a way of pushback. So that's the approach I'm taking. And they're asking why should my freedoms, which have been given to me by God himself, why should my freedoms be, be truncated by the convictions of somebody else? Why should I leave a steak dinner of the best steak in town and go down to Joe's stringy meat market and buy some meat turning green because this guy over here is offended by the fact that this meat has been sacrificed to idols. Why should I do that? And so Paul anticipates that question. Here's the second question, verse 30. He says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for, for which I give thanks? Here's the second anticipation. The second objection, and you've used this. What I do is nobody's business but mine and God's. Who are you to judge me? Have you heard that lately? <laughs> like every other day? Who are you to judge me? I, I can do whatever I want to do. Don't you tell me what to do. That's between me and God. 
So I don't want your convictions and your, your phobias and your concerns to get in the way of me. And that's very American, but it's not very biblical. So in response to these two objections, who are you to limit my freedoms? And who are you to question what me and God want to do? Here is his answers. And that begins his fourth approach as he answers those objections, starting with verse 31. And as we get to these now, this is the very heart of his message. These are some of the most wonderful, most powerful, most life-changing verses in the scriptures. These verses alone will radically change who you and I are if they were understood and applied to our lives. He says, here's what I want you to do. Now that you're pushing back, now that you don't want to do this, now that you don't want somebody else to tell you what to do and limit your freedoms, as you think about that, I want, to, I want you to get your eyes off yourself for just a moment and I want you to get focused on three other things. Now here they are, folks. These are life-changing and I'm not exaggerating. Number one, live for the glory of God. Verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That simple little verse tucked away in this big argument about eating meat to idols and that's been sacrificed to idols and all that kind of stuff becomes the central understanding of the Christian life. Many of you probably know that when the Puritan, they call them divines at the time, I don't know how divine they were, but, but Puritan pastors and theologians got together in the 1600s to write a confession of faith, which now is known as the Westminster Confession. And it's a good confession for the most part. They have a, 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 the opening words of the shorter catechism that goes with the confession are famous. And they go like this. Man's, the question is, what is man's chief end? The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They distilled the whole Bible, 66 books, thousands of words. They distilled all the message of the Bible concerning the chief end of humanity, the chief end of you and I, to that simple statement, which I think captures the teaching of Scripture very well. The chief end of you and I is to glorify God. And then they added so beautifully, and enjoy him forever. If we are glorifying God, we'll have no problem enjoying him. And to enjoy him forever is a marvelous thought. And so we have here to glorify him. How do you do that? That, sound, that rolls off the tongue very well, doesn't it? But how do you go about glorifying God? You glorify God, folks, when, you, when some aspect of your words, your life, your attitude reflects the beauty and the character of God himself. That's what it means to glorify God. When, when you're demonstrating in your life his love, his justice, his fairness, his goodness, his wisdom, and so forth, all these different attributes. When you do that, then you're glorifying God. Our lives then, the chief end, of our lives is to reveal and magnify the splendor of Jesus Christ. That's our chief end. That's our purpose in life. That's what God has called us to. 
And our lives then, not just our words, not just what we say, not just our, our doctrinal statements, but our lives should reflect that splendor of Christ. It should reveal who we are. Two Englishmen were on a train in England, and as they were sitting there, they saw across the way a very dignified, well-dressed man. And they began to talk, and one of them said, I think that's the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England. The other guy said, no way. So I bet you it is. How much you bet? Five pounds. All right? Okay, so the guy who thinks, thought he was the Archbishop went over and said to the man, are you the Archbishop of Canterbury? He looked up at him, got a scowl on his face, and began to cuss the man out. And after being cussed out, the man went back to his friend and said, the bet's off, we can't tell. <laughs> he, he wouldn't say. Huh? Well, I think we know. If, if uh, you were put on trial, someone has said for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to prove it? Is, is your life, do you live your life? And we all have to ask that question. We all have to reflect on that. Is it lived for the glory of God? And do we reflect that glory in the for the lives of others? We should be living to magnify the perfections of God. That's the chief end of us. Here's the second thing we need to have our eyes focused on. That's the good of others. That's what he's been talking about, right? We've got the glory of God. But now what about others? Verse 32. Give no offense either to Jews or to the Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Once again, Paul's going back to his theme. What, uh, the practical way of glorifying God is to live for the benefit of other people. Some, some people seem to have the idea they can glorify God but ignore people. They, they can live to the glory of God but have nothing to do with people. Uh, I actually know a man who has been very involved in Christian ministry for a long time who, uh, who said, I don't like people. Well, that's a problem, right? First uh, John chapter 4, verse 20, uh, John says it real plainly. He said this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Pretty strong words. He probably would get, be uh, canceled in the culture today. He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Very practical, isn't it? Don't you claim to love God, but you don't love Christians. And you don't love Christians if you're not involved in their lives. Don't sit at home and say, yeah, I really love those people. I don't know, their, I don't know them. I don't know their names, hardly. I don't know what, anything about their lives, but I really love them. That's nonsense. And John calls their bluff on that as well as Paul. Paul mentions two aspects of, uh, of focusing on the benefit of others. Verse 32 is, is the negative don't offend others, he says. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. That, now he's going back again to chapter 8. Don't, don't be a stumbling block. Don't, don't have other people stumble over you. Everybody's gotten up at the middle of the night and it's dark out and stepped on something in the floor that you didn't know was there, right? Kid left a toy there. You left your shoes out, something, and you stumbled. Now, there's nothing wrong with the toy. There's nothing wrong with your shoes. They're just in the wrong place the wrong time. And you stumbled over something that may even be good at the right time, but you stumbled nevertheless. Maybe you got hurt. 
And he's saying here, look, don't be an offense. Maybe, maybe you think you can do this or that, but are you being offensive? Are you being a stumbling block to somebody else? Get your, get your focus off yourself and onto others. And then on the positive side, verse 33, uh, uh, says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they might be saved. Paul has been talking about this since chapter 9, what he's willing to do to bring people to Christ. And he's willing to do whatever it takes within the boundaries of, of, of the scriptures to do that. And so as he thinks about this, uh, we, we, you know, often we have people say to us, and you've said it, I've said it, we say to somebody, especially who's going through a hard time, you say, is there anything I, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And most of the time they never let you know, right? I was at a place one time where I was going to minister and the people that were there came to me with a different question. Here was their question consistently. He said, what can I do for you? And then they stayed there until I answered. <laughs> they, they really wanted to know what they could do for me. They weren't just putting it out there hypothetically. What can I do for you? And that's exactly the direction Paul is taking this church and is taking us as well. Be careful when you say these things because somebody might take you up on it. I had a church in Kansas City call me this week, or last week, uh, asking some advice, some help for certain things. And uh, of course, I closed the conversation by saying, if anything I can do to help, let me know. Well, three days later, <laughs> he called me up and said, we're, we talked to you at your word. We're, we're, here, can you do this? And I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. And it was fine. I wanted to do that. But I really wasn't expecting a phone call back. You know, you know how you do that? So what can I do for you? Let's, let's try that this week to people. Let's go to somebody and say, what can I do for you? And stand still long enough to hear especially somebody that you know might need some help right now. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your energy. But you'll do what Christ is calling you to do. There's one more thing he wants us to focus on, though. That's verse 1 of chapter 11. I think almost everybody here knows that the Bible didn't come to us out of heaven with Verses of scriptures and chapter divisions. All right? Verses and chapters. Didn't come bound in a nice leather book. It came in manuscripts and various kinds that were written down. Later on, people added verses and chapters. And we're so glad they did, aren't we? Very, very helpful. Most of the times, those are very helpful. This is one of the most unhelpful divisions in scripture. Chapter 11, verse 1, has nothing to do with chapter 11, per se. It's, all, it's a capstone of chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's the final finale of three chapters. It belongs in chapter 10. And so read it with chapter 10, and that's what we'll do right now. Here's the third thing he wants us to focus on. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. His third thing he wants us to focus on is the, the example of Jesus Christ. So he's pointing them back to two things here. He said, first of all, imitate me, but only as I imitate Christ. As we think of imitating Christ, we'll start with the incarnation. Do you, do you want to know what Christ is like? The Lord has, offered, has given us four Gospels to tell us what Jesus Christ is like. Do you want to imitate Christ? Then you have to know what Christ is like. 
And we have that information primarily in the four Gospels that the Lord has given us. So don't, don't ask the question, what would Jesus do? That was the motto of the social gospel in the 1800s. And it became uh, a proverb out of the book, In His Steps, which is a social gospel book. Don't ask that question because now you have your imagination. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus? I don't know what Jesus would do. But I do know what Jesus did. It's a much better question. Go back to the Gospels. What did Jesus actually do? And then we begin to understand Christ. Christ is the perfect model of humanity. He is the perfect man because he is also the God-man. So we have the incarnation. Secondly, though, we have... What is he doing now? When we think about it, and we could spend a long time looking at the ministries that Christ has right now for us, setting an example of him ministering for us. Think of that. The Lord of the universe serves us, ministers to us. What an, imita what an example to imitate. Think about it for a second. The Lord is the head of the church. Why would he want to be the head of us? Bunch of squirmy little people running around all over the place. Why would he want to mess with us? He's the God of the universe. He, John 15, 5 says he's the vine and we are the branches. We draw our life totally from him. We have no life except for him. Why would he bother? He is the shepherd and we are his sheep according to John 10, 11. Sheep are notoriously getting into trouble. They're high maintenance. And yet the Lord says, I am their shepherd. And he's our high priest, according to Hebrews, which means he intercedes for us in, John, in Hebrews chapter 7. And if he did not intercede for us constantly, we would be hopelessly forever lost. And Christ does that for us. And we could go on for a long, long time. As we imitate Christ, what did he do? He didn't come to serve himself. He said, I've come to serve others. What an example. He has given us. Every, everybody who's raised children know that when the kids are little, they want to imitate mom and dad, don't they? Somewhere along the line, they always put on mom and dad's shoes and walk around the house. We, we hear them playing and we hear them repeating our lines, what we say. And they, eventually they pick up our attitudes and our values. And if those are good, that's great. If they're not so good, not so great. And somewhere in life, often uh, those little kids that want to be exactly like mom and dad decide they don't want to be like mom and dad and there's rebellion that's kind of what he's saying to these Corinthians you know, you're, you're to be imitators of Christ but now you want to go your own way you don't want to follow Christ you don't want to put on his shoes you want to do your own thing and he's saying that is wrong we're to focus on who Christ is and what Christ has done and to be like him and so he's answering these objections. So let me just quickly review them. How, how should we live? What should be the focus of our life, folks? Study, memorize, and think through these three verses, these three or four verses. Glorify God with your life. Seek to benefit others and follow the example of Jesus Christ. You're not going to go very far wrong if you live that way. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, the privilege of looking at a, a, not, not, not exactly an easy passage that draws us clearly to the direction you want us to go in life. Thank you, Lord, for yourself. Thank you for your son. Thank you for all that you have done for us and are doing for us. 
And Lord, we just give you praise today as we've already done throughout the morning. And we pray, Lord, for those that do not yet know you as Savior. May you, Lord, draw them to yourself, even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.